are so thankful you've chosen to tune in on whatever platform you're using, whether Podbean or through Facebook or iTunes. Whatever way you're listening, I just want to say thank you for joining in. We'd love to hear from you, so drop a comment to us or email us at thegrove267 at gmail.com. If you want to know more about us as a ministry, go to hisgrove.com, or you can also check us out on Facebook at Deeply Rooted Ministries in Canton, Texas. We believe God wants to use these messages to spread His truth to a needy world, but primarily a needy church, which needs the truth of the Word to resurrect among us so that Heaven's army will be equipped to win souls and train them up in the Lord. Jesus said if we know the truth, it will set us free. So help us to bring freedom to people's lives by sharing these messages in any way you can. Now to our podcast. Well, uh, welcome back, listeners. Um, We are going to continue our journey through the book of Romans with chapter 8 today. And what we're going to get into, uh, I'm going to split chapter 8 up into two parts because 1 through 17 kind of goes hand in hand and then the rest of 8 kind of almost like while it is kind of a journey through it, um, it is kind of its own separate type topic. And so as a result, I am going to do this in two parts. And then uh, Romans 9, my plan is to do that in its entirety because you really need Romans 9 all in its entirety to understand it. And if I could, I would love to go into Romans chapter 10 even because the beginning of chapter 10 is kind of a culmination of what Romans 9 is all about. Uh, but we'll get to that. But today I'm going to go over chapter 8, 1 through 17. At least that's my plan. On the heels of what we talked about at the end of my chapter 7 podcast, um, if you really need to have that understanding to be able to understand what chapter 8 is talking about. So I would encourage you to go back and look at it. I'll, I'll reference it a little bit um, as we go through here because he talks a lot about the distinction between the flesh and the spirit. Um, let me just say, state this. As an unbeliever, you don't have the spirit. Romans 8 9 makes this very clear. As an unbeliever, all you have is the flesh. That is it. That is the only thing that you can rely on. As a believer, you have the flesh, but you now have the spirit, which can allow you to put to death the deeds of the flesh. It can allow um, the flesh to no longer be on the throne of your life. And so in Romans chapter 7, verse 18, when Paul says, I have nothing good that dwells in me that is in my flesh, that is what he is referencing. When Christ takes the seat or the throne of your life as a believer, he doesn't do so in the flesh. He does it in the spirit, because that's what 1 Corinthians 8 or 3, no, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 3, I believe it's in verse 17 or 18 when he talks about the Lord is the spirit. So he takes the throne in the spirit, but your flesh is still there. He's supposed to be crucified, but too often we allow him to have a voice. What the Spirit does is it allows us the authority of heaven to silence the flesh and to tell him no. And that's what we're going to get into in chapter 8. I highly encourage you to go back and listen to the Romans 7 podcast because of all of these that I've done, this, that might be one of the most important ones for you to grasp, to understand what you have received in Christ. You are not supposed to be a one who remains subject to the flesh. That is not what God has saved you from and for. Okay, And that's going to come in even more clear. And the reason I say this is because I've heard people who teach that. I've heard people who in Romans chapter 7, towards the end of it, say, that's just our lot in life. We're just going to serve the flesh. That's just who we are. 
On this side of heaven, we'll never be able to be like Jesus. We'll never be able to actually walk like Him. Yes, we have the Spirit. Yes, we can do some good things. But we're always just going to serve the flesh. Let me just tell you, if that's the case, and that's your thought process, and that's how you teach that passage, you will die. And I'm not saying that. Scripture says it. And that'll, take, that'll make sense in a second. So here we go. There is therefore... Now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, we're going to camp out on this just for a little bit. Because I feel that it is vital for us to understand this concept um, in its entirety. Not as we oftentimes have heard it or as we want it to be. So, And here's what I mean by this. Say, for instance, in James 5.12, here's what he says here. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Okay, so some of this might sound very familiar to you. He says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. You know what? Actually, I was trying to do that. I was trying to be clever, actually. I was trying to quote that from memory, but I forgot the very first part of it. He says this. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that... You may not fall under condemnation. Now, why is this so important for us to understand and bring into the equation with Romans 8.1? Well, it's very simple. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In James 5.12, he says in the very beginning, But above all my brothers... He's talking to the body and he says, It is possible for you to bring about condemnation upon yourself. Well, how does that fit with Romans 8.1? Because I can tell you, I hear it all the time of people quoting this one out of context. And I had a discussion actually just yesterday about this concept. Because, in, and I, I will like concede to this. The word that's used for condemnation in James 5.12 is not um, the same word that's used in Romans 8.1. The one that's used in Romans 8.1 is, bringing it up, is katakrima which is the Greek word. And this is a pretty severe word that is being used here. And I will concede that the word that's used in James 5.12 is not that same word. It's krisis, is the Greek word. However, they do find their same root. They share the same root of it. But here's what I want to hone in on. I'm going to give you some other verses that actually state believers can come under condemnation. And I'm going to start with Romans 14, verse 23. And check out what he says in this passage. He says this, same author, because it's the same book, six chapters later. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. He's writing to the body. Because eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Now, here's what's interesting. This word that's used here is not katakrima, it's katakrino. And again, they share a very similar root in what they mean. But here's the actual word that's used. To give judgment against, to judge worthy of punishment, to condemn by one's good example, to render another's wickedness there more evident and censurable. To judge against, to sentence, to condemn, or to bring a, a damnatory sentence upon. Part of my language, if you consider that a bad word. It's the same principle as what he's talking about in Romans 8.1. In fact, this word that's used 
is a word that is a very severe word. Now let me get into some of these other passages that you guys might find um, interesting. I'm not going to go into each one of them, but Galatians 2.11. It's when Paul is with the Gentiles and the, uh, the Gentile Christians and Peter's there with him. As some of you might know this story. And Peter is hanging out with the Gentile Christians, but then the Jewish brothers come with James. Oh, The Jewish brothers come with James. And they, all of a sudden, Peter separates. Peter separates from the Gentile Christians. Why? Because the law imposed that there should be partiality between the two. So Paul confronts Peter as a fellow elder. He confronts him in front of everybody. And he says, because Peter stood condemned. You can go back and you can look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6, when it comes to qualifications of appointing an elder. You can look at 1 Timothy 5, 12, when it talks about a widow who's abandoned uh, a, a, a commitment of celibacy and she strays after her lustful passions and she, she brings about um, condemnation. These are all Greek words that have a very similar connotation. And here's why this is so important. Because if you use Romans 8.1 to say there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, I just gave four or five verses that say otherwise. That there can be condemnation that is wrought in a believer. And here's why. When a believer chooses to walk according to the flesh. If you read this verse in the King James Version, here's what it says. Um, let me get back to it. Um, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. You see, the condemnation that he's referencing here, he says there can be no condemnation because Jesus has now come into the picture and has given you a means to conquer the flesh. Which is what he talked about in the very previous chapter when he says, Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So he says, who's going to deliver me from this flesh? Of this flesh of always having to be enslaved to it and in dominion to it. Because I don't have access to be able to... Um, in of of myself, live out the Christ-like life. But praise be to God that through Jesus Christ, I have access unto grace in which I stand. That is, Philippians 4.13 says that I can now do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I don't have to serve the flesh any longer. So therefore, there is no condemnation for any who are in Christ Jesus who choose to put to death the deeds of the flesh and walk according to the Spirit. Because if you walk according to the Spirit, there is no condemnation that can come upon you. But if you choose to walk according to the flesh, and this is why I say, as he says later on in verse 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. He doesn't say, if you live according to the flesh, you are dead. As an unbeliever, as somebody who is dead in their trespasses and sins in which they once walked, as Ephesians 2 talks about, he says, if you live in the flesh, you will die. Future. So this is why I have a problem with people who teach the end of Romans 7 of saying that I'm just going to live according to the flesh. That's just my lot in life. I don't have authority over it. I'm going to be enslaved to it. Woe is me. Instead of realizing that the end of 7 moving into chapter 8 is all about that God has given us the victory. 
Not despite any action that we do, but in our action. He has given us the victory through Jesus Christ to be able to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Is that not what he said in Romans chapter 6? In verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. He says you have a commission to not let sin or flesh have its way in you. But to live by the Spirit. Because that is what he has given you access to and has opened for you in Christ and through Christ. To be able to say, I choose to walk by the Spirit. As 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, that I have the authority to take every thought captive unto the obedience of Jesus Christ. And what's an interesting point my wife brought out the other day as we were studying through this concept, is that Paul doesn't say that it's something that he only just has the ability to do. Listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians 10.5. Here's what he says. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. You catch what he's saying. He doesn't just say, I have the authority or the ability. He says, we are doing it. We are putting to death the deeds of the flesh. We are taking hold of that divine power, of this divine weaponry that he has given to us in Christ, to be able to destroy it. He says, we're not just able to, we're doing it. We are taking every thought captive unto the obedience of Jesus Christ. Paul didn't just say, we just have the ability, but never utilize it. Paul says, we have the ability, and he utilized it. So for those of you who might be listening to this, who teach Romans 7 at the end of it, that We're just going to be servants to the flesh. Well, then you will die in the end. And you're like, well, man, Dwight, that's harsh. Don't you know about what grace and mercy is? No, absolutely do. But I also am taking scripture for what it says. God's mercy is there and it's new every morning for those who choose to take hold of it. God's grace is there for those who choose to humble themselves under his mighty hand. So grace and mercy are there, but so is the warning. And if you choose to just say, well, you know what? I've been saved, once saved, always saved. I'm going to get into heaven. And I I don't have to do anything. There's no responsibility that I have. I just have to um, trust that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that God's going to take care of everything else because anything else than that would be work-based. Let me just tell you, there is a very severe warning here as well as there is in Hebrews chapter 6, 4 through 6, as well as there is in Colossians 1, 21 through 23, as well as there is towards the end of this very passage that we're going to talk about in verse 17. Because let me just tell you, putting to death the deeds of the flesh is a form of suffering. It is a very real struggle. The flesh wants to lead. He wants the throne. And sin wants him to have it. And Satan wants them to have it. So you got three enemies who are waging war against your soul. And they will bring any lure or temptation in to do it. So it is a very real struggle that in the moment, you choose to say, flesh or the spirit. It can be a very real struggle. But if we give ourselves unto the flesh fully, 
But what does James 1, 13 through 15 talk about? He says, each person is tempted and lured by their own desire, and the desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. When the flesh rules, it it allows the birth of sin to come into your life as a believer. And when that sin fully grows unto its full maturity, it brings forth death. And he is referencing believers in James and in Romans chapter 8. So we're going to get into this a little bit more. What I do want you to understand is that it's a very simple idea to understand this. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus who choose to walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. I talked about this at the, I believe it was the end of Romans chapter 6. Or maybe it was Romans chapter 7. I don't remember which one it was. But I went into a very in-depth breakdown of Galatians chapter 6, 7 through 10. When Paul says this. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that he will also reap. If you sow to the flesh, you will reap corruption, which is a Greek word, pathora. It means a moral decay or condemnation, if you will. But if you sow to the Spirit, you will reap eternal life. Notice, you have a choice, flesh or spirit, and you reap what you sow. And even more fittingly, Paul right after that goes on to say, and we will reap if we do not give up. Paul includes himself. That he has the, the, um, the commission to make sure that he walks by the Spirit. And this will make sense a little bit more, so stay with me. So that he could reap the eternal life. And he says, and I will reap that. Along with you, anyone who else who is in Christ, we will reap if we do not give up. And we suffer through the battle of putting to death the deeds of the flesh to live according to the Spirit. He goes on in verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now, the law of sin and death is kind of a tricky thing. This is something that is different than the law of Torah, but they are dependent upon one another. And that's a lot of what we've talked about in previous podcasts over Romans, is that sin found an avenue through Torah to be able to produce death in me. This is what he talked about in the previous two chapters. So the law of sin and death, while it is not identical or is not equating um, exactly as the law of Torah, they, are, they go hand in hand. It's kind of like you can't necessarily have one without the other. He says the law of the Spirit... Or you could call it the law of Christ that we are now under. It is no longer the law of Torah. The law that God has given to us is now the law of Christ. It is not the law of Torah. Because I have been set free from the law of Torah. If you don't agree with me, then I would encourage you to really study the scriptures instead of imposing what you want it to say. I would go look at 2 Corinthians 3 when he talks about the Ten Commandments. That once what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For freedom, Christ has set us free, right? I would encourage you to go look at Galatians chapter 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6 and go see what Paul teaches on that because the very tail end of Galatians chapter 4 is all about two covenants. One, birthed at Mount Sinai. You know what was birthed at Mount Sinai? The Ten Commandments and the Law of Moses, which was the Law of God in the Old Covenant. And then he talks about the free woman. The one who was born of promise, or the child that was born through the woman of promise. She is our mother. 
She's the above Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, as Hebrews 12 would call us. And then it says this, which I think is so fascinating. He says, cast out the slave woman because the son of the slave woman will not inherit with the son of the free woman. And he says, these two covenants can be, or these two mountains, Sinai and Arabia, or Sinai and Arabia, she corresponds to the present Jerusalem. It says it can be construed as two covenants. And here's what it says. One from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with the children. But the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. And then he goes on, he says this, But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. And check out what he says. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. A yoke of slavery to what? To the law of Moses. Because the law of the Spirit in Christ, as Ephesians 2 tells us, has set us free from the bondage and the slavery to the law of Moses. So now the law of God imposed upon his people under the old was Torah. The law of God imposed upon his people under the new is the law of Christ, which is not the same. This is why Jesus says in John 15, that I have kept my Father's commandments and remained in his love and right before it, he says something interesting. Keep my commandments and remain in my love. There's a distinguishing between Jesus' commandments and the Father's commandments. The Father's commandments under the old, Jesus' commandments that will be taught under the new. He says, so the law of the spirit of life or the law of Christ has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For Listen, for God has done what the law meaning Torah, weakened by the flesh, could not do. This is what Hebrews says. Let me turn to it real quick. And I know you can probably hear my pages flipping, and I apologize for that, but I don't want to just use everything on my phone. I am one of those that I believe that we need to be getting our noses into the book, not into our phone. It's way too easy to be distracted on our phones. And so if you hear these pages flipping, just let that be a, a, a joy to your soul. Okay, He says this, For on one hand, this is in Hebrews chapter 7, in verse 18, For on the one hand, the former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law, meaning the law of Moses, made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. See, I don't draw near to God through the law of Moses anymore. I draw near to God through the law of the Spirit or the law of Christ. He is my access into the God. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. It's not through the law of Moses. It is through Christ. And he says that I have now been set free from, by the law of the Spirit from the law of Moses, or the, from the law of sin and death that has its attachment to Moses. And he says, for God has done what the law, meaning the law of Moses, weakened by the flesh, could not do. It was set aside because of its useless and weakness in order to produce in you what God ultimately wanted, and that was the Christ-like life or perfection. Dare I even say that word today? We have come so far from the belief that we could actually walk as Jesus walked. 
So he says this former commandment was set aside because it could not produce in you ultimately what God wanted. And it says, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, basically when it talks about that the word became flesh, it literally translates to the word became flesh. Hebrews 2, 17-19 says that Jesus was made like us in every respect. In every way, he was made just like us. And he says this, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. So again, a contradictory thing to the end of Romans 7. If you believe that we're just going to live according to the flesh, that that's just our lot in life, we don't even have a choice, but praise God, He just loves us anyways. He says, these things are actually being fulfilled in you if you choose to walk by the Spirit and not in the flesh. There is no condemnation that can come upon you if you choose to walk by the Spirit and not in the flesh. What does he mean by the righteous requirement of the law would be fulfilled in us? It's exactly this. For Christ, in Romans 10.4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He says, when you believe, then the righteous requirement of the law of Moses has now been fulfilled. And because of its fulfillment, it is now set aside because you have come into Christ and you are now serving in the new way of the Spirit, not the old way of the written code. He says, for those who live according to the flesh... Set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. He says, look guys, if you're going to let flesh have control, then it's going to be evident by the things that you're setting your mind on. If you're always thinking about your business, if you're always thinking about money, if you're always thinking about your family, let me just tell you, those are earthly things. You don't believe me, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 29-35, when he says, your desire to please your wife is a worldly thing. I'm not saying that it's wrong. I'm not saying, but it is earthly. It is worldly. It is temporal. And I'm not saying it. That's what 1 Corinthians said. That's what scripture teaches. That's what God is saying. Your desire to please your wife is a worldly desire. 1 John 2, 15-17 talks about it. He says, hey, guys, listen. You can't be somebody who says that the love of God is abiding in you if you're choosing to walk in worldliness. I mean, check out what he says. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. It's not abiding in you. You might be in Christ, but you're of the flesh, as 1 Corinthians 3, 1-3 would say. You're an infant in Christ. You haven't learned how to put on love yet, as 1 Corinthians 14 would talk about. 13 and 14. He says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. See, anything that's temporal that has an expiration date on it with this world would be considered worldly. And if that's what you're setting your mind on all the time, then you're of the flesh. You might be in Christ. And that could be even debatable. Because 1 Corinthians 3 says, you might be an infant in Christ, but you're an infant because you're still of the flesh. You're still thinking of fleshly things. 
But listen to what the warning is that he gives to us in Romans chapter 8. It's not okay to remain in the flesh. It's not okay to serve the flesh. It's not okay to just serve the law of sin. God has given us the means in order to overcome having to serve those things. That we don't have to be enslaved anymore. We don't have to be in under the law of sin or under the flesh. We can actually have dominion over those things. Because God has given us a way. But you have to choose to walk in it. He says, for to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Remember what I talked about. God had a law through Moses that he imposed to the people under the old covenant. Now in Christ, God has a law that he has imposed upon the people through Christ in the new covenant. And it is a different law. It is not the same law. To say it's the same law would be incongruent with the rest of Scripture. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, not as under the law of Moses, as James would tell us in chapter 1 and 2. So he says, The mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Because the flesh cannot submit to the law of Christ. It's supposed to be dead on a cross. The flesh cannot submit. So if you're one of those who at the end of Romans 7 is just teaching that we're just going to be of the flesh, that we're just going to live of the flesh and we can't really do anything about it until the other side of heaven. Let me just tell you, it is impossible for you to submit to the law that God has given to us in Christ. Impossible. This goes again into the, into the Galatians 6, 7 through 10. So whatever you sow that you're going to reap. The mind that is set on the flesh is death. In fact, it even says again in verse 7 that it's hostile to God. Because it's now setting its mind on the things of the flesh. And that makes me think of James chapter 4, 1 through 4. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? He says, you're, you're the church. The ones whom God has made his spirit to dwell in. The only ones who can commit adultery against God because you're in covenant with Him. It is impossible for James 4 to be referencing unbelievers. Impossible. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you as the brethren? It's that your passions are at war within you. The flesh and the spirit are at war. And the flesh is winning. Because you're not pursuing unity. You're not pursuing truth. You're pursuing what you want. You're seeking to gratify yourself. And this is basically what he says. He says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? That word for enmity is a word that means hostility. You're putting yourself on a battlefield against God when you want to be a friend of this world. Because I can't I can't even stress this enough, I feel. Because I look out at much of the church today, at least in America, I look out and I see so much flesh. So much setting the minds on the things of the flesh. So much that is out there that is worldly and temporal and even fleshly. And he says, and you're making an enemy of me. 
Because you're choosing to live by the flesh. He says, You adulterous people, do you not know the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The only person who can do that is a believer. Because Ephesians tells us that before, before we came to Christ, we were already walking as enemies of God. I didn't make myself that. I was born that. So the only person that can make themselves an enemy of God is a true believer who has actually been bought by the blood of Jesus and has been sanctified from his past sins. But has chosen to then walk according to the flesh and is walking hostile to God. That's just what the word is teaching. And that means that you're actually making yourself an enemy of God. Exactly what it says here. It says this in verse 9. You, talking about hopefully these Roman Christians, these believers who are choosing to walk in the spirit, who have the spirit of God and are putting to death the deeds of the flesh. What he was talking about before is anyone who is allowing the flesh to have the reign in their life. He says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. You're choosing to be in the spirit. Though you are, you do have the flesh. What he talks about, Paul says in verse 18 of chapter 7, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. Paul says, I still have a flesh. So what he's referencing here in verse 9 is, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. The only way that you can... Put to death the deeds of the flesh as if the Spirit is in you. And he says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Let, let, just let that one sink in. If a person does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now you could go into Hebrews 11.6 when he talked about that uh, people of the flesh cannot please God in the same way. Without faith it's impossible to please God. We know that 1 John 4.15 talks about some elements of this concept of the Spirit dwelling in us that um, we obey His commands and that this we know that we abide with God by the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us. We know in Ephesians 1.13-14 it talks about that when we receive the gospel of our salvation and we believed on Him, we received the Spirit as that mark, that identification tag, if you will, to the heavenlies to say, He belongs to me. You see, the Spirit... Is how we know we belong to God. If the Spirit lives in us. And if the Spirit lives in us. Then the same resurrection power. That brought the dead body of Jesus Christ to life. Lives in us. And even though our bodies are perishable. This is that resurrection hope that we have guys. Even though our bodies are perishable on this side of heaven, we are prone to be sick. We are prone to wear down. We are prone to have um, things happen to this earthly perishable body in the same way that it happened to Jesus's. That body was literally dead. But the same spirit that lived in him lives also in us. And if we choose 
to heed that spirit and live by that spirit and put to death the deeds of the flesh, then one day, just as Paul talked about in Philippians 3, we'll turn to that in just a little, in a little bit, then one day, I will attain the resurrection from the dead to where this perishable body, as 1 Corinthians 15 talks about, will put on the imperishable. And that is our hope. As Paul talks about First Corinthians 15, if, if our hope is only in this life, then we are the people to most be pitied. Because Paul says, <laughs> have you seen how I choose to live? I pour myself out for other people. If this is all that I have, if this life, this existence, I'm not looking to eternal life in the end. If this is it, then man, I'm the most one to be pitied because I'm choosing to live my life for other people. If I get 20 bucks, I'm probably giving 19 of it away. I choose to live simply. I choose to not go off and do the extravagant lifestyle that many people seem to be doing today because he said, look, I'm banking on the fact that I've got another life to come and I'm storing my treasures there, not here. If this is it, then man, pity me because I'm not living it up. I'm not taking advantage of all the things that I've got because I'm storing my treasures up in heaven. And I'm banking on the fact that the same spirit that, that raised Christ from the dead lives in me. So that when this body finally breathes its last, that same power, the same resurrection power will raise me up from the dead. So I guess maybe one of my questions is, is which life are you really living for right now? Because it's not both. You don't, you don't really get to live it up in this life and then live it up in heaven. Understand what I mean by that. Yes, I, I believe that God wants us to live an abundant life but not of worldliness, but of heavenliness here in this world. I don't think God wants us to go out there and extravagantly live. James 5 actually rebukes that concept and says that the things that you store up in this life will eat your flesh like fire and will be evidence against you on that last day. Do you, do you really catch what that's saying? That's saying that the thing, the treasures that you stored up on this life, to live in luxury and self-indulgence, that they will actually go with you to heaven and God's going to look at them and say, oh, that's evidence that your heart was not really with me. Because where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. It'll be evidence against you. God's not asking you to go out there and live an extravagant life. As evidenced by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, that all the apostles did not live a worldly existence. And Paul's just simply stating that I know I'm going to go be with him one day. First Corinthians 15, he talks about it. Look, if, if, if eternal life is not something that exists in the end, then you know what? Go ahead and pity me. Because my, my life is being exhausted for him and for other people at the expense of myself. He says in verse 10, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That is our resurrection hope. But not only is it just a hope for the resurrection, it's the hope for today. Because if the same spirit, catch this, if the same spirit that lived in Christ and empowered him, to live a godlike life here on earth, submissive to the will of God, able to take every thought captive, 
even living the sinless life that he did, if that same spirit lived in him and it lives in you and I today, why would we be any different in what we are able to accomplish through the will of God? So it's not just a resurrection hope. It's actually a living hope today. So the next time that you have that choice between flesh and spirit of knowing the right thing to do. And you have the choice to not do it or to do it. I want you to understand you have everything that you need. His divine power is granted to you everything that you need for a life of godliness. You have the authority to choose the spirit. And if you choose the spirit, then it brings life and peace. If you choose the flesh, eventually it will bring forth death. He goes on, he says this. So then, brothers, because all these things are true, because yes, I still have the flesh, and I know nothing good dwells in it, and if I try to imitate Christ in my flesh, I'll be a miserable replica. But praise God, he has given me his spirit, a spirit that I can put to death the deeds of the flesh, as Colossians 3 talks about in Ephesians 4 and 5. Because all this is true, so then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Remember verse seven, chapter 7, verse 18? Those who like to teach that we're just going to live according to the flesh, that's our lot in life. So we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Uh, do I need to repeat it? I mean, maybe, maybe I need to not repeat it and you just need to pause and you need to find a break. You need to just go read it for yourself. Just go set your eyes in the book on those, on those words. If you live according to the flesh, if you give flesh the throne, if you choose to heed the flesh and allow it to have its way with you, you will give birth to sin and if sin fully grows, it will bring forth death. He says, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. He says, look, if you have the authority and the ability to be led by the Spirit of God, you're a son of God because the Spirit lives in you. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. He says, you, you, you have been given the spirit to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Now go do it. You didn't receive the spirit to fall back into slavery and bondage to the flesh. You received the spirit so you could put to death the deeds of the flesh. This teaching flies in the face of what many people interpret the end of Romans 7 to be. He says very plainly, you did not receive the spirit so you could fall back into slavery to the things of the flesh. You received it so you had the authority and the power to put to death the deeds of the flesh. To no longer live by the flesh. He says, but you have received the spirit of adoption of sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And just briefly, I'll talk about this. You and I have received the spirit of adoption. We have not received the full adoption just yet. 
And I know for some that can be confusing, but listen to what he says. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons. But look at what he says in verse 23. And not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit. Says we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. The redemption of our bodies. So the adoption, while the promise to be finalized is yours and mine. It has not been finalized until we endure to the end. And that will make sense in just a second as I read verse 17. What I want you to understand is, is we have received the promise of adoption. That we have been brought into the house. We have been brought into the fold. We have received the spirit of adoption. But it has not been finalized until the redemption of our bodies from our endurance until the end in the position of Jesus Christ. Because once we endure to the end and we breathe our last and we have been faithful to the end to abide in the person of Jesus Christ, then we will find our glorification. But it hinges upon us relying on the grace of God to endure. Listen to what he goes on to say. The Spirit himself, notice it is not in itself as the King James Version would, would imply. The Spirit himself. It's very difficult to grieve an it. And yet the word says that we have the ability to grieve the Holy Spirit. That's an emotional thing. It's don't have emotions. It's are mechanical. It's don't have emotions. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And check this out. Please listen very carefully. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we Suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now this is what everything culminates to. And why I wanted to end this podcast with this verse. I want you to notice that Paul doesn't say provided you suffer with him as if it was a proof of their actual salvation. He includes himself. So therefore... He is included in the requirement to suffer with Christ here on this earth in order that he also may be glorified. I really hope you're catching this and may the Spirit give you ears to hear what is actually being stated to the church. This is not a proof text of somebody's salvation. This is a preservation text of their salvation. Paul says, I have a responsibility to suffer in this life. And that suffering has many faces. But specifically to the context of the passage, it's the suffering of choosing to lay aside and put to death the deeds of the flesh and to live according to the Spirit. Because if I choose to live according to the flesh, even as a born-again believer, if I choose to live according to the flesh, I will die. But if by the Spirit I choose to put to death the deeds of the flesh, which all this is a form of suffering, I will find life and peace. Or as Galatians 6 talks about, if I sow to the flesh, I'll reap corruption. If I sow to the Spirit, I'll reap eternal life. And Paul says, and we will reap if we do not give up. I cannot emphasize this enough. I'm tired of hearing the once saved, always saved quote-unquote doctrine out there today. 
I'm tired of hearing the, the, how much anger we have towards the concept of a work-based salvation. In the right perspective, there should be anger towards that because nobody is going to work themselves into having a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. You can't be good enough or perfect enough to be able to earn that. But however works are a vital component to our salvation once we do come into it through Jesus Christ. And this is why James 2 is so important to understand and not minimize. A person is not justified in the end simply by faith, but by works. Your works must be supplemented to your faith, not just because in certain cases it would be a proof of your salvation. But let's not make ambiguous generalities of one standard thing and say, no, it's always the proof that you are saved. Sometimes scripture teaches very clearly it is actually the preservation of your salvation. And Paul makes it no different here. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now you can go look at Galatians 4, 1 through 7 where he talks about the same concept about uh, excuse me, being sons and heirs in which we get to call him Abba Father. But I'm going to turn specifically to Philippians chapter 3. And I'm going to end it with this. And here's what he says. Um, Philippians chapter 3, 10 through 14. He says this. Oh, that's Ephesians. He says this. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection... Notice this is present tense. Paul already knows him. But the term know is gnosko. It means to intimately be acquainted with one. And this is where I think a lot of people get the John 10, 26-27 passage incorrect. Is they say, my sheep know me. They follow me. Or they imitate me. They hear my voice. Let me just tell you. That verse does not unequivocally state that every sheep that ever comes into existence is going to do all those things. And here's why. Because the word for for follow is the word for imitate. It means that they are going to ape him. They are going to be as he is. Let me just say, I know for a fact that there's not anyone out there that I can look at right now and say, oh yeah, they've never messed up. But that's exactly what John 10, 26 to 27 is saying, if that's what we're going to take it as. They always hear his voice. They always know him to the fullest length. And they always imitate him in every way, shape or form. I think most people would say, well, uh, no, that, that's, not, that's not possible. We can't do that. Even Paul here says that I may know him. He says, I want to know him more. I might know him, but I know that I can grow in him to know him more. Here's what I believe John 10, 26 to 27 is stating. Is that those who are his sheep are tapped into the ability to know him are tapped into the ability to hear His voice and are tapped into the ability to follow Him. And that's evidenced by Paul here saying in the present tense that I may know Him. And the power of His resurrection, present tense, not futuristic. He says, I want to know the power of His resurrection to take something that was dead and bring it unto life and I want to live in that power. But then he goes on, he says this, and may share... Catch this in response to Romans 8.17. And may share in his sufferings. 
Remember what he said? Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. He says that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings. Present tense. Becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Did you catch that last part? Paul says that I'm going to suffer with Christ here on this life. And I'm going to do everything that I can that through any means possible, I will make sure that on that last day when I breathe my last, that I will attain the resurrection from the dead or glorification. I really hope this is sinking in because Paul is not saying this is unconditionally his the moment that he gave his life to Christ. Paul's saying, and, and um, bear with me on this, Paul's saying, in a way, I have to earn it. I have to endure to the end. Which is why Hebrews 10.36 says, the one who endures to the end, uh, I'm sorry, that's Matthew 10.22, where it says the one who endures to the end will be saved. It's not the one who endures to the end was saved as if it was the proof. It's the endurance that's actually the preservation. The one who endures to the end will be saved. Hebrews 10.36 says, We have need of endurance that after we have done the will of God, we will receive what is promised. And 1 John 2 tells us that that is eternal life. So after we have need of endurance. So after doing the will of God here on earth, suffering with Christ, putting to death the deeds of the flesh, living according to the Spirit, being servants to the will of God, no matter what that looks like, we will receive what is promised. We will find the glorification. Or as Paul says, we will find and attain the resurrection from the dead. And here's what Paul says going 12 through 14. Not that I've already obtained this. He says, the promise is mine, but I have not already obtained it. It is not unconditionally given to me at the end, despite anything that I do or don't do. He says, not that I've already obtained this. I believe he's referencing the resurrection from the dead. He says, I have not already attained it. It's not mine. I have received the spirit of this promise, but the promise has not been to fruition because I still have work to do. And this is Paul talking about himself, not another believer. Not that I've already obtained this, meaning the resurrection from the dead, or that I'm already perfect. He says, not that I'm already perfect, I haven't necessarily achieved perfection. But check out what he says. I hate the teaching that talks about that we cannot be like Christ in this life. Because listen to what Paul says. Not that I've already obtained this resurrection from the dead, or that I'm already perfect. But I press on to make it my own. Paul says, I am pressing on to be perfect as he is perfect. I might not be there yet, but I'm continuing to press forward towards it. I might not have the full redemption all the way to the end, but I'm pressing on to make sure that by any means possible, I will attain that resurrection of the dead. And I will share in his sufferings, and I will do what he asked me to do, and I will abide in the total will of God until the end, so that I may be glorified with him. He says, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the up." 
word call of God in Christ Jesus. What the heck is he talking about in verse 14? I'm glad you asked. I'll tell you. He is saying that there will one day be this upward call of God. And those who are in Christ Jesus will hear it and will respond and will get to enjoy this resurrection. Whether they're dead or alive, they will always be with the Lord. That one day there will be this upward call that God will give. And he will sound forth like a trumpet. And he will call those who belong to Christ. And he will say, come, the time is now fulfilled. You will be with me for all of eternity. And Paul says it like this. I press on towards the goal. So that by any means possible, when he comes knocking on my door, I will be awake and aware to let him in. Fittingly, that's exactly what Luke 12 says. Because it's not him knocking on the door of your heart for a salvation call. This is the day when he comes back. When he's going to return or when your time is up, he's going to be knocking on that door. And blessed is that one who stays awake so that they might open the door. Here's what he says. Stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. I encourage you to go read the rest of it. But my point is this, is that you have a commission in this life to stay awake to hear the voice of God. You've been given the ability to hear it through Christ. You've been given the ability to follow um, Christ and you've been given the ability to know Christ. It's up to you and I to walk in it. And as Paul says, by any means possible, to make sure that that last day I attain the resurrection from the dead, which is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus for those who believe. And coupled with Romans eight seventeen, I don't think there's any way around it. You and I have a responsibility to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing who it is that is working in us to will and to work for His good pleasure. We have a job to do. And that job is to share the sufferings of Christ by putting to death the deeds of the flesh, the wants of the flesh, and the things of the flesh that would seek to rule and to govern our life for self-gratification and indulgence, and instead to put on the Holy Spirit in the way that Christ put Him on. To be ruled by the Spirit and to be governed by the will of God until the end. So that one day we would stand before Him and He would say, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Let me just ask you real quick. If I don't have a responsibility in this, and it is all God. I don't have any responsibility. Then why would God say in the end, Well done, my good and faithful servant. If there was no responsibility in my end, why would God be commending me for what I did on that last day? Doesn't seem to make sense to me. And if I'm to take scripture for what it says in Romans eight seventeen and Philippians 3, then I've got to realize that I've got a responsibility. And that responsibility is to endure in the person of Jesus Christ by choosing to walk according to the Spirit and not the things of the flesh. Y'all be blessed.